And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Triple H 100.1 FM and Small Biz Matters for another week of fantastic small business education and advocacy and support for those of you out there. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is, of course, Alexi Boyd, and I'll be with you for the full hour talking all things small business. Now, today's program I'm rather excited about because it's Small Business Month. We are celebrating the success of small business and I've got sitting across from me, Tom Griffin, who is the founder of Emma and Tom's Juice, a very well-known brand in the food and beverage industry. And the reason why I've got him on the show today is twofold. Number one, I want him to tell us his story, his ups, his downs, his trials, his tribulations and the difficulties that you face when you're running a small business, particularly in the difficult food and beverage space. But Tom's also very outspoken and excited about small business. He is um, passionate about what it is that we do and he's also very passionate about seeing from the rooftops and making sure that the people out there, anyone he can get hold of, understand what it's like to run a small business and how important we are to this economy. Thank you so much for joining Small Biz Matters, Tom, and welcome. Good morning and thank you. It's great to have you on the program, as I said, because, you know, Emmer and Tom's is a really well-known brand. Um, You've been around for a, a good number of years. You've got a really solid uh, company you now um, are well known you know internationally as well obviously that's not an overnight success as we all in small business know Um, what would you say are some of the you know the major lessons that you've learned in this this journey that is Emma and Tom's juice look Emma and I were both fairly old to be um, first-time entrepreneurs but we always knew from the outset there's no silver bullet there's no pop idol and we focused on servicing the route trade, being your local cafes and delis and IGAs and food works, because they were owned by people who are entrepreneurs like us, and they were behind the counter serving. So if you walk into your favourite cafe and buy your sandwich, and they they would say, "Hey, t- taste this new green juice from Emma and Tom's. It's fantastic." You buy it. You haven't been advertised at. You've discovered it yourself. You like it. You tell your friends. And that was the whole thesis from the outset. And probably now after 15 years, um, we can probably reflect on it and say it's worked. But mm. that's a lot of visits to a lot of shops. So it's really just getting on the ground and making and building up those relationships on a one-on-one one level. Is that is that the secret source to your it's, success? It's just work. I mean, I, yeah. I'm currently reading the, the uh, Rip Curl story and I read Shoe Dog about Nike last year and it's all the same stuff. You, yeah. you have a product, you go out to the shops, you sell it to them, you convince them to take it on, no one knows the brand but it's good so people buy it and then you make more and you juggle cash and you hang on and you keep on going. And that's, that's how it works. Yeah, and I guess those ups and downs, it's a great way of describing it. You sort of you hang on for dear life and you just, you just ride the, the crazy horse that is small business. Do you, think, um, do you think it's made easy for us in small business or do you think it's made hard? You know, we hear a lot about, I guess, um, the regulators, I guess they're in the space of administering small business, which is fair enough. But then a lot of times they say, oh, we, we just want to get out of the way of small business in a really broad sense with your experience, particularly in that industry. Is that a reality? Have they got out of the way at all in the last 10 years? I mean, you could say on paper that Emma and I were perfectly suited to do this business. Mm. We were experienced. You know, Emma was had five years at Uncle Ben's, the Mars pet food business. Uh, and, you know, I joke that making pet food actually is not dissimilar to making a good quality fruit juice. <laughs> you know, great products, manufacturing, packaging, distribution and sales. Just and a slightly different Ours tastes a bit better. <laughs> not quite as fishy. Um uh, Emma has an MBA from INSEAD in Fontainebleau in France. She's been head of consumer marketing for the NAB. You know, I'd worked in London and Paris and Melbourne and Sydney and everywhere else. We found it hard enough. Trust me. And there's always stuff. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I had him on the phone on the weekend. I mean, there's always something you've got to deal with. Mm. And we sort of thought once we did our year's preparation and launched four bottles of juice in those days that that's the hard work done. <laughs> sort of it, it, it all starts. And every day it's about solving problems. Mm-hmm. You've got to realise that's, that, that's life. If it wasn't about solving problems, we'd be on the beach in Byron Bay. Mm. But um, there's always stuff, as you can imagine. And, and with the, the food and beverage industry, what, what do you think predominantly are those problems that need to be solved? I mean, if you were talking to someone who was thinking about, you know, being inspired by you and your company and they're thinking about going into a similar business, what would be the main things that you would give them as a lesson that you've learned? It's funny, we often joke, and this is not cocky, it's actually self-depreciating. If someone was starting a similar business, I could honestly charge them $100,000 for one day's consulting and they'd probably save themselves a million bucks. <laughs> no, because we've lost it. So, yeah. Um, cash, capital. Uh, in Australia, obviously, distribution's a major because of, of the tyranny of distance. Yeah. So to get a bottle, one bottle of juice, 350 grams... From Melbourne to Perth cost me thirty cents. Thirty cents. So it's expensive. Um, so there's distribution and there's cash. And of course, you need to make sure you've got enough cash and access to cash because as you grow in this type of business, you need more cash. Do you think it's hard? I mean, it's, you know, cash funding and and small business lending at the moment is big, big topic. Uh, do you think that it's harder now than it was ten years ago? Do we um, are we the ones who suffer as a result of the economies going up and uh, economy going up and down because of, of the lack of funding available to small business? I mean, we all know the banks have really clamped down, particularly since Hain. Um, you're fine if you have security. Yeah, they, they, they love security. But in the absence of that, then you go to your non-bank lenders who are charging a real premium. Mm-hmm. And then in, if you're lucky, you can perhaps sell some equity, which in my mind is the dearest form of finance. Uh, so it's tough. It is difficult. Um, you know, I'm working on another business, and one of the guys who's a founder there made the comment that when you start, you need to have a massive margin because, A, it's hard enough. So you deserve to be rewarded. And, B, it's going to get tipped away. Mm. So start, don't start skinny. And, you know, we always look at things like sort of price discounting and competing on price as a race to the bottom. It's a no-win. With, with an industry such as yours, what's a good buffer to start with? People who are sort of starting out, what would you say, don't go into this unless you've got X amount in the bank? How, how long is a piece of string? Um, mm. It's difficult. You know, for example, we do snacks and we do fresh juice and that's their different risk profiles. You know, fresh juice lasts about two months in a refrigerator. Um, a raw fruit and nut bar lasts 18 months in the carport. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're per gram, they're much more expensive. So you have to, sounds like, I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't know anything about the food and beverage industry. You've got to do your homework by the sounds of it. You've got to know distribution lines. You've got to know distance. You've got to know who your clients are. Then you've got to go out and market it. And I guess you've got to be thinking about warehousing and packaging. Um, are there software solutions out there that can support you? I mean, are there things that are already in place that work effectively in the industry that that you can happily uh, say that that's something that can support a, a business now than 20 years ago? No. We have 40 vans who service our, our proprietary customer base. And mm-hmm. many people want to ask us, can we you know, sell our product through your van? And the answer is no, because A, the vans are full, mm-hmm. and B, if it's not branded Emron Toms, it doesn't really help me at all. Right. Um, and that's taken, once again, years of work to get that set up, and there's no sort of, um, once again, silver bullet there. You've got to start from scratch and go and see your first customer. Yeah. And probably each customer takes three visits to bear down, because particularly when you're, a, when you're a, a new brand, 
You know, now I walk in and say hi, we're from Tom's. They're probably already a stockist anyhow. I've got some new kefir waters. They're fantastic. They're not quite as acidic and vinegary as kombucha and still contain a billion bacteria. Do you want to try them? No. Yep, put them in. Yeah. But back in the day, they would want to talk to their business partner or their their life partner, whether they should range them, because these small businesses, they you know, there's, they make sure that everything in their store is there for a reason. They don't just chuck it in to fill the shelf. It's got to sell. Mm, mm, exactly. And it's got to, and I guess it's got to be aligned with their brand as well. Absolutely. Now, speaking of branding, that sounds to me like it's really a cornerstone of what you've done. What I'm hearing is that, you know, you're very proud of the brand. You, you stand by it. Everything's got to be um, labelled correctly and used correctly. Is that something that you would say is fundamental for any small business? Yeah. One of our key sort of um, uh, corporate identities is to be straight up. You look at our packaging, it's straight up. Mm-hmm. You know, being called Emmer and Tom's could sound quite cottagey, so we have fairly industrial packaging, mm-hmm. and it just says what it is. <laughs> it says what it is yeah. in the bottle. <laughs> yeah, bang, that's what it is. And that's now been copied quite a lot because of, sort of the, the boldness of the font and everything else. But um, we try and make sure, obviously, that's uniform across the whole range, and now we've got sort of probably more than 70 uh, different products. We started with four. And that's been driven mainly by our route trade distribution and having these sort of 3,000 proprietary customers because you're so close to your customer. Mm. And you're driving a van and stopping and you put on the handbrake and say, well, hang on, I'm here. What, what else can I sell them? They might buy more than 60 bottles of juice a week, but they could buy some bars. So it sounds to me like that tyranny of distance is something you've actually used in your favour. You've been a bit more clever with understanding, well, if I'm going to travel all this way and get through the traffic and be in, spend all this time in the van, I might as well think about what else am I going to support them with? How am I going to have that conversation? And, and maybe that's something, a good little takeaway that most businesses who are listening today can, can think about. What, what can I do to make the most of this meeting, this conversation, this you know, per chance delivery even? What can I do to make the most of it? That's right. And we also try to obviously have density of customers. So you put the handbrake on and you, and you see four or five customers before you move the van again. Mm, mm. Um, and now we, of course, to answer your question before, we do have things now like GPS tracking. So a lot of technology has come about that supports us, doesn't give you the answer, but it supports us, that you couldn't have got for the price 10 plus years ago. No way. So this technology now allows us to behave like a multinational, yeah. but for a fraction of the price. Yeah. So there's, yeah, we have logistic software, we have GPS tracking, we have... And inventory software as well. That, that's got to be crucial. We have yeah. NetStock, which is a plug-in to, um, to J-Curve and NetSuite that we mm-hmm. use. Mm-hmm. And NetStock helps us, once again, maximise stock, reordering. So we don't get the phone call, which we used to, from the bottling plant saying, we're making the green power, it's all in the, in the tank, and we're... We're running out of, uh, out of spirulina, which is what makes it green. Right. Uh, that was happening, I can tell you. Wow. Because, um, of course, whatever can go wrong will go wrong uh-huh. early on. So now we've got the, the systems and the software and the understanding that we avoid all those things. Uh, yeah, years ago, we produced a range for one of the large supermarket chains. It was a, a one-litre ambient Tetra Pak. And 20 sets of eyes had looked at the artwork and, you know, you get Tetra Packs printed. You've got to get 100,000 of each flavour done. And it was launched, and within four hours, we got the phone call from the recall department, and it was good at recalling as they were selling. It doesn't contain the twenty, uh, the ten cent refund in SA. We'd missed it. Oh no! They wouldn't give us even two hours to go and make some stickers and run around and put them on manually. It was put into. This was the irony. The EPA in South Australia had it put into landfill, so we had four, forty thousand tetras put in landfill on day one. Wow! And that's a system error. Yeah. So now we have sign-offs and things to make sure that everything's compliant before it goes out. 
So especially with something like food and bev as well, you've got you've got all those um, um, issues around compliance and uh, and health. Absolutely. Um, so you've got to have those processes and procedures in place. <laughs> How did you even start with that? I mean, I'm just envisaging, you know, you're in a I'm assuming a garage, a storage unit where you're you're making the juice for the first time. <laughs> where no, did we you made start? it. We started at Emma's Kitchen uh-huh. for a year doing that, and of course we used juice from the market or fruit from the market. It was all lovely. We had focus groups. The first focus group, when they all arrived, we served them wine, so their palate was shot. <laughs> um, yeah, live and learn. Um, and then you go from the kitchen to the and the, you know, the smallest, most modest bottling plant. Uh-huh. And how do you find that? Well, we had a bottle made and designed. And people who make bottles tend to send them to bottling plants. So you, know, you, you sort of follow the thread. And we found this very old, quite antiquated plant. And then you start making commercial mixes up there to, to, to test so you're making a thousand liters using commercially sourced fruit, yeah, and of course it tasted terrible. <laughs> then you realise you've got frozen banana or aseptic banana, which has been pasteurised, and you've got you've got Australian frozen or Australian aseptic. You've got imported frozen, imported. So everything you taste and work out what's best because even one of the ingredients being a bit sort of wrong obviously taints the entire batch. Of course. And then we of course finally got it right. We we produced our first eight thousand bottles and had no customers. Of course, day one. Of course. So then you run around and do all you can to sell them in and you don't sell all 8,000 in a pink fit and you make 8,000 the following Monday and 8,000 the Monday after that because in those days we had much shorter life on the juice. Right. So then we stockpiled and think, what can we do with this? And we found an event in Melbourne called Around the Bay in a Day where 12,000 cyclists literally ride to each point of Point Nepean and Point Lonsdale, hop on the calf area and cross the heads and then do the other 100 kilometres to come home again. Right. So that day, 12,000 cyclists got a, a free bottle of Emron Tom's in their lunch pack. Our first marketing initiative, we sort of turned negatives into positives. We maximised the downside and got some good PR. Right, exactly. Luck, though. There was a bit of luck. A bit of luck. There's always, there's always <laughs> there's luck. There's always luck. There's always, I can tell you, there was always a lot of luck. Um, and so, well, that's it's such an interesting journey because obviously over, as you said, 15 years, going from just that little, I, I just can imagine, it's literally happening in a kitchen. There's juices yes. everywhere and there's, there's, there's bottles and you're making things up and you've got focus groups. It's, it's really fantastic. Well, tell me just where did the idea come from in the first place? I've been doing a... Why s- juice? I was doing a London-based startup. And our backer went and famously lost one and a half billion pounds of his own wealth in the tech wreck. Right. So he pulled funding. We sued him. He sued us. Yada, yada. We sold what we had to Bernie Eccleston, who had a media unit. And I went skiing because I was a skier. As you do. I got to pay out and I was time to leave London. I'd been also working for Pernod Ricard in a previous life in London, uh, which is the French drinks conglomerate. So I sort of had, had drinks and I had a startup. And, and I was skiing drinking these great smoothies in the gondola going up to the high alpine every morning. And all of a sudden, it was like my aha moment. These are great. You can't buy them in Australia. They're delicious. Everyone likes them. They're good for you. Um, I thought of Emma immediately because of her background and I'd known her for a long time. So I sort of put it to her and she said yes. And we spent a year then getting it going. And we turned 15 last month. That's fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. It's, it's just so good to hear that sort of like good news story, really. I mean, but like you said, ups and downs all through the, the way. We're going to take a quick break here on Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd on Triple H 100.1 FM. When we come back, I want to talk to Tom a little bit about um, who the experts were that he surrounded himself as he grew and who, I guess, were the real helpers in his business apart from himself and Emma. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and across the community radio network. We'll be back after this. 
So today we're talking to Tom from Emma and Tom's Juice, of course. He's been describing to us his business journey, the ups and the downs. And I wanted to ask you, Tom, in terms of business advice, uh, did you do it right the first time? Did you did you get it right with who to ask and who to ask advice from? Or did you kind of do the, oh, we've done our research, we've done our focus groups, we know what we're doing now, so we're just going to forge ahead. What were some of the mistakes that you made with um, asking people for advice around you? Yeah, well, you picked it. The, uh, we did the latter um, initially. <laughs> Not because we were arrogant. We just knew what we, what we wanted to do and we set about doing it. And also in the first five years of business, um, Emma had a son, um, I had with my partner of the time, two daughters. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, we're not married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often joke that having children and doing a startup is like running a marathon and being past a refrigerator <laughs> to carry, like a ripper. That makes it easier. Um, so, and my my partner was away a lot with her work, so mm-hmm. I was at home, you know, two in nappies and bottle feeding and the whole thing. Um, and so we just didn't fully have our mind on things, obviously. And we made a lot of mistakes. And... We subsequently put together an advisory board. We had a, a, a guy who's a uh, he actually runs Blackstone in Australia as a chairman. We had Carolyn Creswell from Carmen's who was very generous with her time for two years, um, and we started taking advice. And now we seek it out wherever we go, and we try and see as many people as we possibly can. To the point that if we have a meeting with somebody who we've been uh, introduced to, we try and leave that meeting with another referral from them for the next person. Oh, you that's know, very so kind. It's a chain. Yeah. Um, and we're always out there sort of questioning ourselves and looking at things because our biggest concern is what we don't know, we don't know. Mm. And that's the big thing. Tell me about those advisory boards. That sounds really interesting. So at what stage of your business growth were you doing that? And how did you put that together? Was it literally just almost a mentoring kind of relationship? Yeah, look, this guy, James Carnegie, is an old friend of mine. He came and saw us. He just left um, a large PE firm called Archer, uh, having sold Seller Masters to Woolworths. And he was having some time off. And he came and had a chat. And I said, you think we, we should have an advisory board? And he said, should yeah. <laughs> like that fast. And Emma said, why? We know what we're going to do. And he said, Emma, it's two hours of free advice. Like, duh. You know, and it is. Every quarter, you had two hours of download from four people who know, have had other experiences. That gives you work for the following three months. Like, And so I mean, they, they, it was... It was uh, it's hold a mirror up. Yeah, I was going to say, frank. accountability. And they walked out of the first meeting. And I said to Emma, I'm quite pleased I wasn't sacked. You know, it's, it's great. It's hand over the flame stuff mm-hmm. if they're doing their job. So that was very helpful. And I we, like that idea. It's kind of like a mentorship, but it's in, a, in the form of a board and it's, it's structured. And, you know, he said, look, don't pay us because you couldn't afford to pay us what we're worth, which is a fair point. So we tried to make it fun, have some dinners, give them, give them referring opportunities and everything else. Um, we now actually are very lucky to have a, a, a man who Emma knows, whose name is Kurt Leonard, who's got almost zero online footprint. But he's the ex-CEO um, of Mars Australasia. So with years of experience. And we're going to have coffee with him and just have a chat and he sort of just guides us and it really helps. And so that evolved uh, from being a structured board and something that you, you met quite regularly into just, um, I guess, an evolution of advisors that you occasionally drop into and, and keep on getting help from. Those advisors, are they filling a particular role, say, as an accountant or a lawyer, or was it more just... Um, business acumen in that space, in your food and beverage space? We've been, I think, quite good at either taking advice or paying for it, but just not for too long. So if we need advice on, say, grocery or IT, we, mm-hmm. sh- we, we ship in the expert and learn and pay them casually and then stop paying them and do it ourselves. You know, we all often find, we think, oh, that's, that, that sounds hard, let's get someone to help us. Mm-hmm. And when you actually do it yourself, it isn't that hard and you work it out. 
and you always find you do it better when you do it yourself. You know, no one, no one cares more than you do. So we've sort of taken that on. We've now got an excellent CFO, uh, really for the first time ever. He's been in his seat for a year, and it's just a breath of fresh air, the quality of reporting, the timeliness of reporting, uh, what he's doing with um, NetSuite and, and, and the information he can pull. You know, we got money out of the NAB last year quite a lot uh, on the back of having quite a lot. And you know, post Hain, and they said, okay, if you want to apply, here's a list of requests we've, we'll, you must respond to. And my CFO, he just put together one spreadsheet with some 12 tabs, and it was just like a poo yeah. <laughs> they, they got it and said, well, we can't argue with that. Yeah. Bang. So that's where the quality of information is just vital. And do you think that they're having that sort of the software in the background, working in the background in real time, um, it makes all the difference to be able to produce those quality reports in order to get the funding, in order to grow? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our our, our incumbent software could only record stock in one location. So we had this spreadsheet that was invariably wrong and four months out of date. Um, And we we have stock in, obviously, four warehouses that we own, an off-site warehouse, um, 40 vans could be deemed stock locations, and 60 SKUs. Um, and, we, and we produce really just in time. So, so now we have a person who sits on that as well and we have a production and procurement manager. But in the early days, it was all spreadsheets and Band-Aids and you know, it's a nightmare. So the quicker, we were too slow to move, um, the quicker you can move and accelerate. And these programs actually aren't that expensive even, so it's ludicrous. So now all the drivers have um, PDAs that are, that are in the cloud and real time. So, you know, you sell one bottle to one shop in Wollamaloo and we can see stock drop down by bottle in, in the office. Wow. It's that good. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a godsend. Yeah. Mm, mm. And, and it sounds to me like you almost said there, if, if you had your time again, you oh, would have moved on to that faster? By a decade. <laughs> <laughs> if see, it was around. It probably wasn't around yeah. see, as well. So you play the cards you dealt. Mm. But back to what you don't know, you don't know. So I went out and looked at all the, all the um, alternatives and it became very, very clear that NetSuite was the no-brainer, mm. and it has been. Now, I want to ask you about, um, in particular, you know, because because you, you've got that l- l- huge level of experience, and I like talking to people who have been in business for a long time. If you had your time again, who was the first person that you would have hired? Because I, I find this quite an interesting topic. Is it the admin person who supports your back end so you can get out there selling? Or is it salesperson to help your business grow? Or is it the advisor? Going back, knowing what you know now, who would have been the first person you put, apart from yourselves, on the books? We both came from big corporate backgrounds, so we probably hired too fast thinking we'll just pad the thing out with jobs rather than doing more ourselves. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a, an area we're both quite critical of each other about. Uh, we were out there doing it, but we probably always get hired too fast. But we were in a meeting some years ago, and Emma said to um, the guy, when we launched... We were told it's all about distribution. What we've learned recently is that it really, really, really is all about distribution. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to sell it. Yeah, you've got to move it. It's, it's called the last mile. You know, we can together today organise to have a pallet of orange juice bottled off up in the Murrumbidgee irrigation area and put it into a cool room. We can even organise it to get it freighted to Melbourne in a, in a, in a chilled truck and put it into another cool room. It's getting into the shops the hard bit, that last mile. So mm. that's the, the ongoing challenge. Mm. And, and again, you talk about relationship building and how important that is, and, and that's an ongoing challenge by the sounds of it as well. Is it harder as you get bigger to keep those relationships in place? 
I don't think so. We've we've become a B Corp recently, which is a, a, a benefits corporation. So you're judged on your, not just financial output, but your environmental and your social output. Oh, okay. And one of the many, many, many criteria are longevity of supply relationships. Obviously, if they're all short term, you've burnt people along the way. And we had a list of them that are well over 10 years. Because you've really worked hard. And you do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And then you say, and you go out there and you say hi, and you, you make it personable, I, su- I assume, even though you're big. Yeah, and we get along with them well. And, um, you know, if you have a problem, you ring them and say, our early um, supplier was Michelle Nugent up in Griffith. And she was a, she's tough. Um, Michelle, we can't pay tomorrow, but we can pay you next Wednesday. No worries, Tom. And we pay it next Wednesday. Because you said, you do what you're going to say. Yeah. So you tell her you can't pay now, and it's short, and everyone has these problems. You do what it says on the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, but you make sure you come, you come good on the, on the day. Now, you're talking a lot about this really um, fantastic buzzword, but I think you live, eat and breathe it as well, which is integrity. Tell me how that is really a cornerstone of, of not just growth in your business, but, but how you've operated for all these years. Well, I suppose if Emma and I are the, um, are the thought leaders, you know, we, we set the example. You see a lot of business partnerships, be they in corporates where they say co-heads of an investment banking unit and the egos clash after a year and a half or I've seen other private companies where there's partners and one goes and pulls 40 grand out of the bank and, you know, terrible. And we've had this 15, 16-year relationship which we really um, base on three key attributes being trust, respect and a shared vision. Mm. Probably like any relationship. And we always try and do what's better for the business or the customer or the product, not not for us um, and it's endured and you know I can't say I've got integrity you don't label yourself like that but you know Emma does if Emma even sells a bit of juice to a friend for 20 bucks I'll get to the office and find a $10 note in my drawer mm. I mean it's, it's that clear yeah and, and I guess that's it's a little bit about the personality but how you've um, I guess worked with each other as a partnership if you make that the the reason why you're in business and the, the, the way that you behave with one another, then, of course, the, the growth comes easily after that. And it's the bigger that. picture. Mm. It's the long-term impact. So you want to make sure you're behaving in a long-term fashion and not trying to do a short-term win. What about integrity with your employees? That's such a hard balance to find with, with running a business. On the one hand, you've got a minimum wage. That's what you have to pay them. Of course, you're going to do that. You meet all your obligations. Um, how do you find the balance between what you can afford and, and what you need to do to keep up your integrity with your employees? We definitely reward or over-reward people who deserve it. Um, longevity, obviously, and loyalty gets rewarded. Um, you know, effort gets rewarded. Innovation gets rewarded. Mm-hmm. So we have a very generous bonus system for, the, for all of our um, van drivers. Uh, one of the other B Corp measures is the, the disparity between um, the lowest and the highest salaries and the percentage of non-executive pay, which is bonus, for example. So we have new account bonuses, we have sales targets bonuses. So if you're um, just one of 40 drivers, so not doing a management role, but you're excelling, you can up your salary by 50%. Just by tapping into those opportunities. By doing a better job. Could I ask you about um, how you, I don't want, the control's the wrong word, but how do you um, understand how your employees are going on the road when you've got such tyranny of distance between you and your employees. How do you manage that? We have a management structure where there's a state manager overseeing each um, group of vans and drivers. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have um, GPS and we were told when that was installed, you're going to lose a third of your staff in the next month to the point that we, um, because you 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 can map them. And Mm -hmm. one girl, we said, you've been 
parked outside your house now three times today. Mm-hmm. And her response was, I resign. Yeah. So, but, and we didn't bother. And was that the reality? That, yeah. that you really yeah, were so going to Yeah. <laughs> so then you have sales figures. Mm. And you can have a, you can have a, a run that covers um, you know, the southern suburbs of Sydney. And one week it's doing $3,000 and a new driver comes on board and does 1.8. Bang. Yeah. So it's, it's very transparent. Yeah. And, and I guess that real-time data as well, what, what makes it real. It, moving into the, the next 10 years of having that sort of workforce and the workforce that grows up with understanding that, that it's kind of, they're kind of going to be tracked. I don't like using that word, but they're, they're going to be monitored in You have such to. Way. Otherwise, what's a good day and a bad day? Mm, exactly. And Otherwise, then how do you, the business owner, know what's happening as well? Uh, well, we look at reports, mm-hmm. which will orders now get pumped out um, automatically from NetSuite. Yeah. So it's very simple. Yeah, so I mean, it, and that's the reality of what, what. And if you're not tapped into that world, then how can you possibly understand what your employees are doing, and then in turn behave with integrity and reward the good, the good. That's right. I mean, it's 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 not being a nasty employer to expect a certain standard. Yeah. I can't afford to have someone going out and losing money every day. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. work. What we're going to do is take a quick break here on small biz, and when we come back after the break, I want to have a chat to Tom about. Um, I guess what, in his opinion, can uh, the government, state, local, federal do to support small business? better. Uh, Being in the food and beverage industry, it's fairly um, heavily compliant based. Uh, And what is it that they can do to support businesses in their growth phase or even just in the startup phase? You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back after this. We are talking on Triple H 100.1 FM. My name is Alexi Boyd and this is Small Biz Matters. Thank you for tuning in this week. We are learning from one of the experts. We're learning about a small business journey, the ups, the downs, the difficulties, the headaches um, and the successes. We are, of course, talking to Tom Griffith from Emma and Tom's. It's been lovely having you in the station today, Tom. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, compliance, government and what, in your opinion, with your level of experience, um, government can do better in general to support small business. Just as a real top line question, what can they do better to help small business, in your opinion? In general, they cut you no slack. I'll use the example that doesn't involve us as a large Australian um, olive oil uh, grower and manufacturer. So they grow the olives and they press them. Yeah. And, you know, he would say in Australia, like, there's oh and and there's work cover and there's HACCP and there's all these different things you've got to comply with and everything costs you five or 10000 bucks, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And they go and do a free trade agreement with Spain and start shipping in three-year-old olive oil for 40 odd cents a litre. Now, like, is that because... <laughs> how do you compete? Is that because we're not getting in Don't front think. of the government and they're just not hearing... Because we're so disparate, each little industry, each little company, everybody, uh, I guess in our own way, we're looking after ourselves, but we're not Italy. Like, we're not a a huge, massive um, country that can come in and has the bargaining power and the, I guess, the ability to just walk in and have a meeting with the Department of Trade. We can't do that as a small business. Is it because we don't have anyone speaking for us or is it it because we're just not thought of? In that conversation that they're having with a different country for a fair trade, free trade agreement, they're just not thinking of the small business owner at the end of the chain that's going to be affected by that. Yeah, and they they don't cater for it. I mean, I'm involved in this other business in Melbourne which involves making plastic pallets and I went via the UK um, Foreign Office for Investment. I spoke to the right person there. Uh, Following that, I had a one and a half hour meeting at Whitehall in London, mm-hmm. and as a result of that, they pump out an 80-page report as to how we they can help us set up in the UK. Who would you go to to get something similar in Australia? Would you even know which department to go to? No idea. There's no, from what we understand, there's no sort of easy system because if it has to be done from scratch of your time, it's job creation. 
So everyone runs around, and then you finally get a grant that might be sort of, you know, $1.5 million, but it's got to be spent in part on government services, where, for example, for Austrade, where you get a consultant to help you, which is what you don't need. What you want is actually some marketing spend to help you launch in the country overseas. Yeah. Bang. Yeah. Cash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, and this is the thing, I mean, you just, you just nailed it there because, you know, you're expected that if you're an entrepreneur, you're starting a business, you're probably going to have more people working for you and, and have a more impact on the economy because you're spending more money to set your business up. Whereas if the support was there in the first place to really understand the channels that you needed to go through um, and get the specific support that you need instead of sort of dancing around what you, mm. you think you need, um, is that where you think that would be more helpful? You'd drive it harder and you'd get to scale faster. Mm. And you'd employ, you'd employ more people. Uh, yeah, but, and successfully as well, not, not to just go out of business. And for us, it's not just the employees, of course, it's, it's our 200 suppliers um, who you know, quite like being paid. So I'm going to be honest with you. Do you think whenever the small business really gets in front of a politician or someone who is a decision maker that it's just a talk fest? Look, I saw Turnbull before he was Prime Minister at the um, Australian-American Leadership Dialogue talking about supporting innovation. And then, of course, he's now fully come and gone and in hindsight there was nothing. Mm. I saw Josh Frydenberg at a breakfast two weeks ago uh, boasting how they, they're so helpful with the R&D grants. Well, you know, it takes a year and a half to get your cash back if you're lucky. You get, you get 40% and that doesn't help anyone who's not doing research and development. And by the way, if you're proven to be claiming research and development and it's not, mm. they'll chuck you in the can. So it's pretty risky. You know, we've decided for our business we might get $30,000 back, but really it's not worth the work to put in and the risk in doing so to claim that money. We're better just to get on with our job. So when they're rolling out these programs like R&D, is it because they're not consulting in the first place? And then if you had one of them sitting there and say, okay, this sounds like a great program in theory, what you're doing... Who do they need to talk to? Because a lot of the government, when I speak to them, they say that the difficulty is not knowing who to consult with. They don't, they don't seem to get hold of the right people. So who do they consult with? Because again, as a small business community, we're very separated. We're very, um, you know, working under our own steam. We often are not part of a professional association. So how can they consult? They can't possibly consult with every individual business. Who can they talk to to get the best advice to make sure these programs work? Look, once again, we've now reverted to using Deloitte. And they've got a really good department who are across all those different grants and when they're coming up and who to talk to and why and everything else. And obviously there's grants that involve property and obviously regional growth. It's all jobs and growth, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. So if you tick that box, mm. you get their ears. Okay. Uh, but then similarly, you can do a lot of work and you might get an allocation of $10 million amongst 40 different businesses. So you want to be careful you don't start working for the grant as opposed to your own business. Right. And that's a hard balance to find. Yeah. Who do you get the advice from to sort of say to yourself, okay, well, I've got this great concept, this entrepreneurship idea, and I'm going to run with it. Where do you go? Is, is a professional association a good place to start joining and then getting advice from others? Is a mentoring program like you did with your business advisory um, board, is that a good... Uh, how, do you, how do you get Look, the advice I, you need? I think finding a, a mentor, it's a funny word, because obviously it could just be a friend who gives you advice, but someone who's in the industry who knows. Um, you know, I'm involved with... with, with um, both the Melbourne Accelerator Program, which is the Melbourne University sort of um, VC sort of funding arm, and the Wade Institute of Entrepreneurship. And I've helped one guy there who's had a – it's actually a great product. It's a bacon-flavoured seasoning, and he's launched from scratch. And, you know, we talk every three or four months, less and less these days, but I've helped him get into Woolworths, get into Audi with some, some design. Mind you, he's helped us because he's doing it – he was doing it all online – so I went and redid our 
Emma and Tom's website about two years ago, and his input was very helpful there. So we both learn. Yeah. And he's a good guy. Um, but I do think having a mentor to fast track things helps enormously and to open doors. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. And you need someone who's well connected within the industry and as well that can, that can get you those meetings that, that are really important. And again, going back to what you were saying at the beginning of the program, it's important that you make the most of those meetings and think, how can I leverage even just the time that I'm spending here, which is something we were talking about in the break. Um, I want to talk to you about a concept that's uh, state-based, which is return and earn, which you're quite passionate about. Um, can you tell me from your perspective as, as one of the you know, successful small businesses in this program, how it doesn't always work and and the public perception is not really marrying up with what the experience of small business is. Yeah, look, firstly, let me say, I'm, I'm, I abhor pollution. I think people who litter are just are disgraceful and lazy. Um, and our pallet business will hopefully use and utilise every single used bottle in Australia and halve deforestation. So we're doing our bit there, I can tell you. Mm. But on the return and earn, you know, we've had to fund it as suppliers. So it was a government scheme. It was the only environmental scheme, despite being offered $15 million by large industry players to put in more recycling bins in the streets and things. They were adamant they wanted to do this. The way it works is, of course, they charge us 14 cents per bottle, which is the 10 cent refund and a 4 cent or 40% admin fee, which is huge, obviously. So hang on, you produce a bottle and the government sends you a bill for 14 cents. Yep, they look at our sales and we, do, we declare sales, etc., and we pay 14 cents a month in advance per bottle. Now, what happens there, obviously, a retailer wants to make a margin of about 50%. So if a bottle was $2 and it goes to two fourteen, they say, well, it was 4 bucks in my shop, now it's four let let's call it four thirty. So then you, the consumer comes along, you pay your four you've paid 30 cents more, and then if you drag your sorry backside down to the recycling depot, you get back 10 cents. I'm still confused about this 14 cents. <laughs> It's, so it's the ten they pay the consumer yeah. plus four cents to run the scheme. So the government, it's this is not actually costing the government at all because I presume that this money that they're collecting off the producers of the bottles, which is yourselves and others, and others we're, uh, we're, we're, that, we're, we're a small player, obviously, right? Yeah. But we're one of the people, and we have a they they attribute us a percentage of used bottles in the state, and the scheme is now run by five major industry participants via a private company and they refuse to disclose where the funds are going and there's billions of dollars going through this company every year and they won't disclose um, transparent rates of return, who's getting paid what. Um, They don't disclose operating costs, nothing. But going back to this 14 cents, uh, is everyone paying 14 cents? It varies on the type of container you use. Right. So ours are levied at 14 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about cans because we don't do cans, of course, but it's all different. Do you know of any businesses that have gone out of business as a result of return and earn or just couldn't get started? I don't, but it definitely impedes growth because people like these um, boutique beer brewers and things. Because mm. every, every new container you produce, every new barcode on a, on a new flavour, you have to pay a, regist- a, a, a fee to register that. So it's scannable. Yeah. Um, so it's just another cost. I mean, we were, it cost us in a cash flow sense um, about $60,000. And why would have putting in the, uh, you, you mentioned at the beginning when originally the, the industry said, look, we, we think that it would work more successfully if people were encouraged to recycle at the point of sale and there were separated bins and that's where the, 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 the stuff was recycled and set up. That's right. Why would that have been a better option for the industry as a small, as a small business owner? Well, I mean, right now, this system is run by the government because they wanted to make a statement. 
but I'm saying people don't want to litter. If you give them more chance to dispose of their of their products um, easily, they will do that. Mm. And I believe also the roadside system, I know for a fact, was working extremely well with all the household waste. But there's still a, there's a, the problem is there's a disconnect in Australia about circular recycling in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, the Minister of Victoria commented that with the collapse of SKM recently, mm. they are now getting back on track to produce clean, recycled material to be able to, and she said it, sell overseas. Mm. So there's the mindset still that bury it or get rid of it. Yeah. Where we're going to start reusing it in a circular fashion. Mm. And, you know, I'd remarked to Andrew on the day of the climate protests. I said, isn't it funny, we aren't marching, but we're hopefully going to halve deforestation. And true to form, we said, yep, you can jump up and down all you like about it, but what are you going to do about it? Mm. And that's pretty true. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's, it's an interesting conversation, isn't it? Because I think um, we, look, and, and, and having said that, I'm, I'm ridiculous. Like we, there's 17 different ways you can put any piece of rubbish in my house anywhere. And Us I've too. got lots of different, you know, bread tags and, and, and sushi, everything. Everything's completely separated. Um, but you don't think about the impact of these schemes that can have on the end users or the end operators, which is, of course, small business. And it's something that, that needs to be brought to, to everyone's attention. It's a government scheme. They should fund it, is my point. And make it transparent. Right. Those are the two main points. Yeah, the transparency, I think, is very important it's, it's as well. disgraceful. So speaking, uh, going back to what we were saying about um, small business and, and how they can support things better, to me, do you believe that the industry is too heavy, heavily compliant on red tape or is that red tape very important for uh, the consumer safety and making sure that people don't become unwell, for example? Oh, food clearly. And I mean, you know, for food and beverage, um, you must have a be high level of food safety and we have food safety consultants we have everything tested in labs I mean we are highly compliant that's obviously a cost of doing business which is unavoidable and you need to to pursue it um, and we do all the time but it's the other cost and not, you know, the obvious one payroll tax um, mm. that's, just, that's literally cost on hiring people and they're you know, as you know it was meant to be a temporary tax back in about the 1920s and they get addicted to it mm. and off we go mm. So. And what would you say to the state government if they said, but we're increasing the, the threshold? So it's now in New South Wales a $1 million threshold that, or they're heading towards a $1 million threshold for payroll tax in New South Wales, but you're national. So you've obviously got yeah. different payroll schemes, t- payroll tax schemes you need to be compliant with. That's right. And we were going along blindly, not even thinking about it. And of course, you're, you're reporting payroll in other ways, like for your superannuation payments and things, and they're all cross-checked now. Mm. So of course, all of a sudden you get hit with all these bills. Um, without any sort of real warning, and you know, call us naive, it just wasn't on the radar. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's another expense. Mm. That's all. I mean, just make it a bit easy, you know, could you? Yeah, that's a good point. Make it a bit easy. <laughs> just, just, just. It's hard enough. Yeah, know? yeah, that's right. Exactly. Look, um, I'd like to thank you so much, Tom, for coming and joining Small Biz Matters today. You've been incredibly generous with your experience and your time and um, just helping us learn from one of the big boys about how what success actually actually looks like and what you'd like to see the regulators and government bodies do to, to do better to support Small Biz. Thank you so much for joining Small Biz Matters here um, with myself, Alexi Boyd. Um, thanks for coming on the program. No, thanks. Good fun. Now, if you've missed any of today's show, you can, of course, catch up via our podcast on all podcasting channels. There are over 150 fantastic podcasts like this, long form, and we have yet to repeat a topic because, as you know, as small business owners, there is so much out there to learn. Join me next week for another fantastic guest here on the show. Uh, we've actually got lots and lots of guests coming up as the uh, the next few weeks progress. Um, and uh, I'd like to thank you once again for joining me, Alexi Boyd. Make sure you subscribe to the newsletter, smallbizmatters.com.au. And I will see you all on Triple H 100.1 FM next Tuesday.